Welcome to Dermatologically Tested, the podcast of the British Association of Dermatologists, with Matt Gass and Nina Goad. So on this podcast, we'll be exploring the world of our skin with a range of dermatological experts, tackling topics from the clinical to the cosmetic. Today, we're talking all about contact allergy, also known as contact dermatitis or contact eczema. Dermatitis describes a type of inflammation of the skin. So contact dermatitis describes inflammation that is caused by direct skin contact with something in your environment. Now, I'm sure nobody's going to complain about a lack of waffle from Nina and I at the start of the episode, but as there's a lot that we want to cover today, I think it's best that we just jump straight in. So today, our guest is Dr. Deirdre Buckley, consultant dermatologist and current president of the British Society for Cutaneous Allergy. Hi, Deirdre. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hello, Matt. Hello, Nina. Good afternoon. Thank you for inviting me. Hi, Deirdre. Thank you so much for joining us today. So I was wondering if it's possible just to kick off with um, a basic definition, really. What is contact allergy and how does it differ from, say, a contact irritant? So contact allergy is where somebody encounters a substance which would be completely innocuous to the vast majority of the population. So it could be something very ordinary like rubber or nickel and jewellery. But to that individual, um, in that individual, it causes an allergic reaction. Now, those allergic reactions can be immediate. So an example might be something like latex allergen, which might cause immediate hives and wheels, um, or, or contact maybe with rabbit fur, which might cause an immediate reaction, or it can be a delayed reaction to something like a perfume, like a fragrance on the skin, or maybe a, a reaction to a plant that you've touched, and it might be the next day or the day after even you come up with a reaction. And as to how that differs from contact irritancy, so irritancy is something that probably can arise in anybody if you allow enough exposure to that substance at a high enough concentration. So a common irritant is soap, for example. And most people, if they start hand washing 30 or 40 times a day, will eventually get a contact irritant hand dermatitis. It's not necessarily that it was something specific to that individual. Although if you have eczema already or you had it when you were a child, you'd probably get it that bit earlier. Okay, I mean, that's really interesting. So when you talk about irritants, I mean, something like a stinging nettle, is that an irritant or is that, would that just be classed as something completely different? So that's a good question because, of course, we, we all react to nettles, don't we? What happens is that when, you, when you, your skin contacts a nettle, it causes release of histamine in the skin, just in everybody. It gives you what we call urticaria or hives where you've touched that nettle and it's very itchy and uncomfortable for a while. You've got a rash. And the immediate reaction I talked about with, say, a rabbit or with latex um, can look and feel very like that. But with, with nettles, it's not an allergic reaction. It's just that they produce this chemical that causes something which very much mimics an allergic reaction and uses a very similar mechanism. So it's not that everybody's allergic to nettles. It's just that they have a chemical in them that causes you to produce an allergic type reaction on the skin. Quite often, if a patient comes to me and they have urticaria or spontaneous hives, which is usually not an allergy, um, I say to them, do you get something which looks like a nettle rash? Because the public understand that, you know, they know what a nettle rash looks like because, of course, we've all had it. Um, But although an allergic reaction can look like a nettle rash, they occur in a different way. So, Deirdre, that's really interesting. And you've mentioned potential allergens. Are you able to give us some examples of what common allergens might be? And can you develop a contact allergy to anything? 
or is there specific things that make something prone to become an allergen? So you, you can't develop a contact allergy to anything. I mean, there are things which are completely inert. So an example is paraffin, for example. That would be pure Vaseline in a tin. You know, you can't be allergic to that. And things like titanium are very inert. So if somebody is thought to have had a reaction to the metal in a, a hip replacement, we advise a titanium-based hip instead um, if they have to have it replaced. So there are some substances that inherently are highly unlikely, if not impossible, that they might cause a reaction. In um, somebody, for example, who works as a massage therapist, if they become allergic to the fragrance oils, they're often called essential oils like lavender and so forth, we advise that they switch to olive oil or almond oil or coconut oil because any of those three uh, is very unlikely to cause allergy. So those, so it's not not the case that anything can cause an allergy. Some things are particularly prone to doing so. Um, and the things which are most likely to do so, we, of course, include in our patch test series or prick test series. So if we think, first of all, about immediate types of allergy, the things that are most likely to, to cause um, immediate allergy are going to be things like grass pollen and animal hair, like dog and cat hair, um, contact with things like dust, um, Latex is another example, and often raw fruits and vegetables. So many people with hand dermatitis can't handle raw potatoes if they're trying to chop them, but they can eat cooked potatoes without a problem because the, the protein structure was changed by cooking and their immune system doesn't recognize it anymore. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Because you think when you cut a potato, it's quite sort of wet and hard, um, but when you eat it, it's turned fluffy and soft. So the structure of the potato has changed by cooking. And because that changes the shape of the protein in the potato, your immune system doesn't recognize it anymore. And that, that's that's a very common thing. We call that protein contact dermatitis, that you can't touch these raw fruits, vegetables, and sometimes meat, but you can eat them without a difficulty. So so those, um, those are fairly common immediate type allergens. And then delayed allergens, um, very common examples are hair dye, fragrance, metals like in cheap jewellery, like the sleepers you have when you've had your ears first pierced. Um, nickel is generally the problem or cobalt. Uh, it can be things like rubber, preservatives, plants. And the thing of which we're seeing the most at the moment is actually acrylate. So when people go to the nail bar and they have uh, things painted on their nails in ultraviolet light shone on those lacquers and polishes, those are, are very common allergens. We're seeing a, a wave of allergy to those at the moment. So, so those would be common things. And then, you know, as I say, that, that there are things which we think of as, as pretty inert. So if a patient comes in and says, I'm allergic to paraffin, what I tend to think is, well, actually, your skin has already been very irritated by the fact that you have eczema or that you've had irritants going on it or you're allergic to something else. But it's actually very unlikely to be the paraffin that's causing the problem. And because it's so inert, we actually mix all our patch test allergens in a paraffin base. Because clearly, if you're testing something, you don't want them to react to the base, which will mean they'll react to everything and you'll have a very confused picture. Deirdre, that's absolutely fascinating to learn that certain foods can cause contact allergy, because I didn't actually know that. Is that something that's relatively common? And what sort of fruits and vegetables would it tend to be? And I'm guessing it also must affect people's faces then if you ate a, a 
raw fruit or vegetable and you didn't know necessarily that you were allergic to it could it also cause a reaction on your lips or on your face well, it, it could theoretically. I mean, it's usually a problem mainly on the hands and it's in people who have hand dermatitis already. So a typical example would be in, in a chef or a cook or a housewife, if you like, or house husband um, who has already got hand dermatitis, either because of wear and tear or because they had eczema when they were a child. And now they're doing lots of hand washing and wet work. And because the skin is broken, it must be easier for the protein to get into the immune system and be recognized and antibodies to be made. And typically what the person notices is that when they handle those specific things, so common example would be potatoes, tomatoes, carrot, all in their raw state, or it can be uh, with things like meats, um, so beef, pork, sometimes fish can do it. Um, th th those are, are common examples. Um, or, or it could be fruits, you know, it could be things like strawberries or peaches, um, but the very common ones are things like potatoes um, and tomatoes and carrots. And people notice that their hands are itching suddenly much more than they would be within a few minutes. And they look and they see little blisters or bumps on the sides of the fingers. And then the whole eczema uh, is made much worse for about a week until it calms down. But because the facial skin is not usually broken, it's and mostly the, the food is going in so into the mouth rather than touching the skin around the face it seems to be much less likely to cause a problem there now there is a thing we do commonly see with with fruit and vegetables and um, which does affect the, the mouth um, and that's uh, called an oral allergy syndrome or pollen food syndrome and a very common example of that is apples in somebody with hay fever so typically what they notice is that if they eat a raw apple they get a slightly itchy or scratchy feeling uh, on their palate and at the back of their mouth in their throat. They may get slight lip swelling. They feel a little bit itchy, but they don't feel as though they're about to die or they don't feel as though they don't get that sort of feeling of doom like somebody might get with a severe peanut allergy, for example. Um, if, if they take an antihistamine and wash their mouth out, they're fine after half an hour. Um, if the apple is cooked or tinned or juiced, like apple pie, there's no problem whatsoever because, again, the protein is altered. And what's happening there is that the protein to which they're allergic, so they have hay fever, is very similar to the protein in certain fruits and vegetables and even a few nuts. And some people find that they can eat certain types of apple, like they're okay with Granny Smith, but not with Royal Gala, for instance. So you can get symptoms around, around the face, but not so much with the potato issue. And so, you know, although, I mean, I'm a dermatologist and we're talking about skin problems this afternoon, um, many of the people who have a tendency to dermatitis also have hay fever because there's a link between atopic eczema and hay fever. And therefore, many of my patients do describe this problem to me. And because we all think of apples as being, I suppose, quite a friendly, healthy, an apple a day keeps the doctor away sort of thing, um, people often have never really had an explanation as to what, what the problem is. And they find it quite satisfying when you say, oh, I know what's causing that, you know. So you mentioned patch testing earlier. And I suppose because that's so central to, to contact allergy, it'd be great actually just to get a sort of brief overview of, of what that is and how that works. I think um, one thing that's important to make clear is that patch testing and prick testing are completely different. And sometimes, I mean, I do prick test as well. But sometimes people come and they think that they can have patch testing done as a quick thing on the same day and have results after 10 or 15 minutes. 
And no, patch testing is a slow process which takes place over about a week. And that's because we're looking for a delayed reaction. So one of the allergens for which we test is, is hair dye, which we call PPD for short. And la ladies or men indeed who dye their hair and they, they know they're allergic to hair dye, they know that the problem actually begins a few hours later or maybe the next day. That's when they react. So in, in a similar way, if you're actually testing for allergy, for example, to hair dye, you have to put the allergen on the, back, on the skin, usually on a patient's back, and then you leave it there for 48 hours before it's removed. And it's only after 48 hours that you might expect there would be the beginning of some sort of reaction, a positive test. And then you have to see the patient not only after 48 hours, but after another couple of days again, because the reaction might be stronger or there might be a reaction which was not there at 48 hours. One thing that I was curious about, so we, we talk about people having these contact allergies, but where do they come from? Are people born with the, the, the chance that they might have an allergic reaction to these ingredients or, or products, or does it develop over the course of their lifetime? Well, two, two things in that, and uh, Matt, thanks. And it also depends on whether we're talking about the immediate reactions or the delayed reactions. So the delayed ones being the ones for which we do patch testing. Um, for the immediate reactions, people are born with a tendency to get an allergy. So, for instance, latex allergy is much more frequent in people who have asthma or eczema or a, um, a hay fever. So those three conditions are linked and we call that atopy, A-T-O-P-Y. And quite often people have perhaps a father or a brother with eczema um, maybe their sister had asthma they themselves might have eczema and asthma and hay fever, something like that. So those conditions are linked with each other and they're also linked with a tendency to develop allergies to things like latex, cats, dogs, um, the protein contact dermatitis on the hands to potatoes, that, the sort of things I talked about. Um, with allergic contact dermatitis, so that's, for example, allergy to fragrance or rubber or lanolin or metals, the um, the link isn't so clear in terms of are you born with a tendency and um, we don't know what gene that tendency might be on. Anecdotally, quite a few of my patients say, oh, yes, my mother was also allergic to nickel or rubber or something like that. So it, there isn't a clear cut genetic link like there is for the immediate type. In terms of are you born with an allergy? For most people, no. So they have done antibody studies on placental fluid for babies where the mother perhaps has eczema or hay fever or the mother has a food allergy and they have in occasional cases found antibodies present before or at birth um, but in the majority of cases allergy is acquired and for example with fragrance allergy um, and I've done some research work on this over the years we know that below the age of two it's very uncommon to have an allergy to fragrance in fact it only really gets going in the second decade of life in teenagers. So from the age of about 15 and older, perfume allergy gets more common. And then with each 10 years or decade of life that goes by, it gets more and more likely. So it peaks in about the 60s and the 70s. And then as our immune system wanes a bit, once we get into the 80s, it goes down slightly. And we think the reason for that increase in lifetime is exposure. So we know that one to two percent of the population in Europe are allergic to fragrance. So that's pretty common, one in 50. But of course, 100 percent 
of us are exposed to fragrance. It's literally in our shampoo, our shower gel, our washing up liquid, in our toothpaste. So all day, every day, we're exposed to fragrances. And why why it is that only one in 50 or one in 100 get sensitized, we're not sure. They've done lots of studies looking at if you have atopy, eczema, asthma, are you more likely to be allergic to certain chemicals like fragrance? And they haven't really found a clear link. It, with some plants, dandelion-like plants, contact allergy, so allergic contact dermatitis to those, is more common in people with things like asthma, hay fever and eczema. But for most, there isn't a sort of clear link. And in fact, nickel allergy is a bit less likely in those with eczema. So it's a complicated picture, actually. But the overall thing is that the longer you've been exposed to something, the more likely you are to be allergic. And patients find that quite surprising. So every week somebody says to me, but doctor, I've been using that cream for 20 years. I could not be allergic to it. And people believe that because they think, well, if it was never a problem then, why should it be a problem now? But there, there are several answers to that. Number one is, as I've just said, repeated exposure, especially at high concentrations, makes you more likely to become sensitized. Number two is that manufacturers of a cream can change the ingredients without making the label on the front look much different. So they would list the new ingredient on the back, but the cream would look the same at the front. Um, and on the back, it would be in tiny print. And the third thing is that ingredients in creams will actually alter anyway over months and years. So if you've owned a cream for two or three years, the air will have affected some of the ingredients and changed them. We call that oxidization. And for some perfumes like lemon perfumes or lavender perfumes, that makes them much more allergenic. Is there an argument for cosmetics companies perhaps labelling if they add new ingredients um, to the fronts of jars or packaging to make it a bit more obvious? Or do you think that would be overkill? Is it something that isn't especially common so it wouldn't necessarily be of use to people? Uh, that, that's a really good question. And we at the British Society for Cutaneous Allergy meet regularly with a body called the, the CTPA, so the Cosmetics, Toiletries and Perfumery Association. And that's the, the British representative body, if you like, for cosmetics manufacturers. And of course, they don't want people to react badly to their products. Of course, they don't, because then they have a complaint and people may not want to buy them. If lots of people start reacting, everybody will tell their friends. So it's in their interest to make their products very safe. Now, in, in terms of labeling it on the front when they put in a new ingredient, th there are various issues with that. So most members of the public don't understand you know, the long scientific uh, biochemical name of a chemical. So it mightn't mean much if you said contains such and such. Also, I think that they have a, a natural tendency to only put a, put a label on the front of some new ingredient if they think it looks as though it will make the person 20 years younger or something, you know, if it sounds like a very positive thing. They do sometimes use sort of reverse labeling. So they say things like parabens free or SLS free, sodium lauryl sulfate free which are sort of marketing gimmicks. In practice, an individual product has got a lot of ingredients and there's only a certain amount of space on the container. And if they're trying to have them all on there, which they're legally required to at the moment, which is good, um, they have to be in very tiny print. They did a consultation a few months ago as to whether the labelling should be changed so that it doesn't have to be on the label. 
and one there might be some sort of scanning app that a, a consumer could use an app on their phone to scan over the product and read the list there. My feeling on that was that a lot of people still, especially older people, are not that technologically savvy, if you want to use that word, and would prefer if it's actually there on the container. Um, they are legally allowed to have it actually on a transparent piece of film, which is wrapped around the product before you buy it, or on a package insert in that nice, expensive looking uh, cardboard box in which the tube arrives. And of course, what normally happens is that that piece of paper gets thrown away or the clear film on the outside of, for example, a mascara, that gets thrown away. So then there's no information later when the person has reacted to that product. There are a couple of databases of what's in products, but of course, a database is only as good as when it's updated. So there's one called COSDNA, C-O-S-D-N-A. And if I look on that at a particular product, and I won't name names because, you know, we're... Uh, we don't want to name names of specific products, but if you think of a, you know a very popular cream in a blue container with white writing on that's been used for decades, um, that will have a different ingredient set changed every year often. And so unless you know exactly when the thing was purchased, you don't know which, if you like, batch and therefore what the ingredients exactly were. So why would they change ingredients? Is that just to, to improve their formulas? usually when they think it's something that will have a better effect on the skin that they change ingredients? There are a number of reasons for changing the ingredients. Um, obviously, a, a top reason is that that ingredient is banned. So for the last couple of decades, there's been a body in Brussels, which is composed of scientists uh, from a number of countries, and they look at particular chemicals that are added to cosmetics, and they decide if they're safe or not. It's called the Scientific Committee on Consumer Safety. And they issue an, you know, a, a pronunciation. If they decide to ban something, they usually give the manufacturers about two to three years notice so that they have a chance to gradually substitute something else. Um, and, you know, if you like, sell all the stuff that they have in their supply chain, which seems fair. So, for example, we've got a ban coming in next year for a couple of perfumes, one called Oak Moss and one called Lyral. And from my meetings with the CTPA, they've been trying to find things which actually smell quite similar and will have a similar effect in the product, but which are chemically unrelated. So they, they may change something because of a ban. So when you say that the, the group may decide that it's unsafe, do you mean that the, there's too many allergic reactions happening or something like that? So that's a common reason. So if I give an example, but about 10 years ago, we were seeing lots of problems um, in people using baby wipes and toilet wipes, face wipes, and a number of other products like sunscreen and um, moisturiser. And they were due to a spe specific chemical called methyl isothiazolinone, quite a mouthful. And that had been added to these products about six years earlier after this body in Brussels had looked at this chemical and decided it was safe to be introduced into uh, items which are classed as cosmetics, including wipes, that were intended to be left on the skin. So if you clean the skin with a wet wipe, you don't then rinse off the wet of the wet wipe. And it actually turned out that the assessment had been completely wrong, and this chemical was highly sensitising. So people like myself and my colleagues around the country and around the world saw more and more patients with facial swelling who were getting really unpleasant reactions to this chemical. 
and we we audited, we pooled our data, we presented it at international and national meetings. We did contact the press, which can be a very effective thing to do. And within a couple of years, first of all, the cosmetics manufacturers agreed to voluntarily stop using it. And then things moved very slowly in Brussels and the ban took another couple of years. So, yes, it's often in response to a particular issue being flagged by patch testing doctors like myself. I still wake up in cold sweats sometimes because I once had that particular um, ingredient. I once had to try and pronounce live (laughs) on BBC radio and I had a very sleepless night trying to get that right. I think I still butchered it. At the time when so many people were reacting to a particular brand of facial wipes, which were labelled sensitive wipes, an elderly lady came to see me with very bad facial swelling. And I said, look, I wonder if you're using this particular type of wipe. And she said, yes, I am. And I said, well, I think that's either the only cause or part of the cause of the problem you have. So she came to see me a week or two later. I'd given her some treatment. I'd asked her to stop using the wipes. She was much better. And I was planning to patch test her to prove it. And she brought the packet of wipes with her and said to me, um, you know, I suppose she was quite pleased really that I'd been wrong because she'd looked at the ingredient listing and she said, no, it's definitely not in there. So I looked at the front of the packet and I thought, well, I'd be very surprised if it isn't. And I looked at the back and there it was, lo and behold, in tiny print. So the point of the story is that even these chemical names are so complicated that even if you say to somebody, you must avoid this, that... It's even quite hard for them to see it. And also the print is so tiny that although she, she had been told that was the problem, she still couldn't see it in the product, if that makes sense. Yeah, when you get to my age, to be honest, you have product uh, problems enough reading labels at the best of times, especially when you actually really have to. Um, mm. It's not always very easy to read the small print. Um, mm. I'm thinking, so we're talking about people who might have identified um, through seeing a doctor and patch testing and various tests, what it is that they're allergic to. But going back a step, lots of people must react to something and suspect that they've got a contact allergy, but not have a clue what it's to. What would be their first step? Who should they go and see first? And then what's the process for then being referred or how's that managed? Yeah, so if it depends on the context. So if, for example, it's something to do with their occupation, so let's say that they're working in a factory and they become that they notice that when they're at work, perhaps their hands or their face or both get worse and worse. And they're convinced it's something in the workplace because they improve so much on holidays. They should you know, contact their employer and ask to be referred to either the occupational health department in that firm, if it's a very big firm, or to be referred to via the manager, perhaps to an occupational dermatologist if you like so that would be somebody like myself the the manufacturer is required to keep information on all the chemicals to which its employees are exposed for example machine oil in a factory something like that so one route is to go through occupational health if it's something to do with your workplace and of course if you're self-employed perhaps you own your own hairdressing salon then that's different you'll be the person required to keep details of what's in the products um, and you can read the labels of hairdressing products because they're classed as cosmetics. If you think you have reacted to a moisturising cream, which you purchased, let's say, in a department store, then what you should do is keep the product of which you're suspicious and um, contact the manufacturer either by email or 
their customer services telephone number, let them know that you think you reacted. And they would often have a link with the service. So they may refer you to a dermatologist who will patch test you to that product. And they will also supply that doctor with all of the ingredients um, at a suitable concentration for patch testing. So that's another way in which to get help. It is important to emphasize that they should never throw away the thing which they think caused a problem because if they decide to go through a third route so they go to their gp and they say i think i have an allergy i think i'm reacting to something i'm not sure what or it might have been this they may be referred to dermatology now ideally to a dermatologist who specializes in patch testing a member of the british society for cutaneous allergy and that doctor will find it extremely useful to see that product and read the labeling but also when doing the patch testing to patch test to the product itself so there's a natural tendency to throw something away if you think it caused you harm uh, very very tempting but actually we'd prefer if, if they didn't so either through the gp or through occupational health in the workplace or by contacting um, the manufacturer of a product if, if it's something you've bought in a shop what should they do in the meantime so say you've had an allergic reaction to something on your hands or your face and you don't know what it is but you're going to be seeing your doctor is there anything that you can apply in the meantime that will help ease the symptoms temporarily or is it best to literally just leave it alone and wait so the first thing i would do in this age of technology um is i would take a photograph clear photographs in focus of what it actually looks like because by the time you get to see the doctor of course, inevitably, the rash will be gone, or at least you hope it will be. But it's nice for them to see what it was like in terms of making a diagnosis. As I say, it's good to keep anything that one has been using. And if you can't bring them all to your appointment, at least photograph the ingredient labelling um, and bring that with you. And in terms of what you should do, ideally, you would stop anything with fragrance in because that's a common allergen. Um, if you want to use something which will calm the skin to moisturise it, then using plain Vaseline is a good idea. So Vaseline with the blue top on the tin that has no perfume added, you can't be allergic to that and it's quite soothing. Over the counter, you can buy a steroid cream called Eumovate. You don't need a prescription for that. It's E-U-M-O-V-A-T-E. And if you apply that to your face for five days, that should be a reasonably safe thing to do and will calm down a very acute dermatitis if you can't get medical help. And you could put the Vaseline on over that. So that would be a sort of a first aid type manoeuvre. For the hands, you should start wearing gloves for washing up and things. Um, again, it's a good idea to use a moisturiser, maybe a nice light oatmeal-based one or a gel-based one uh, frequently during the day and something greasier at night, which could be something more like Vaseline. You cannot buy over-the-counter a steroid cream stronger than the one I mentioned, Umivate. You could try that on your hands, but it may not be strong enough to work. I think those tips are, re are really, really helpful. So thanks so much for that. It sounds like, from what we've talked about as well, that a, a huge amount of this contact allergy is related to your work. So I suppose a, a really important point is employers being proactive and on top of training and uh, helping their employees stay safe. That's absolutely right. And many manufacturers are and um, employers are really responsible and they have, you know, a really actively functioning health and safety department. They have they provide proper personal protective equipment, often known as PPE, to all their employees, and they enforce wearing of it. And um, they have a, a link person in a department to which an employee 
uh, can take a problem and say, look, I've developed an issue with this and that employee may be moved to another part of the production line so they're no longer exposed to whatever's causing their problem. So those would be obviously the good companies, often the large companies, but there may be, if you like, smaller companies which don't treat their employees so well. And a particularly bad example would be nail bars in general. So nail bars are often manned by employees who may have not been trained very well, not supplied with PPE. Sometimes they don't necessarily speak English. They've recently arrived in the UK and they've not been told how to avoid sensitising themselves and they're extremely vulnerable staff who feel unable to complain to their employer about their working conditions and the fact that they've developed an allergy. So there are, if you like, pockets of occupations in in Britain where people are can be particularly vulnerable. And I'm, I, I'm singling out nail bars to mention because that's quite a common issue. Another common thing I see is um, usually females aged about six, between 16 and 18, and they all their life they've wanted to be a hairdresser. They used to have eczema when they were about two and they grew out of it when they were four or five and may not even have been that bad and their skin has been fine ever since and when you become an apprentice as a hairdresser your first job is to wash hair all day every day so you do all the shampooing and shampoo is an irritant it's a contact irritant and the combination of the water friction and shampoo can very frequently cause hand dermatitis so a lot of people do drop out of hairdressing at an early stage for that reason although you know the ones I see actually they really don't want to they don't want to change occupation it's what they've always wanted to do if they can manage to graduate shall we say after a couple of years into styling then often the hands improve so they're no longer doing all that washing um, of the hands of you know, while shampooing um, and they then may be able to continue with the career but what can then happen later is they get sensitized to hair dye or perming agents or a preservative and so the combination of the, the friction, the irritancy, the fact that they had an eczema tendency and now they've developed an allergy, I sometimes have to give very unwelcome news to patients and say, I'm really sorry, but I just don't know that we're going to be able to get your hands better if you continue with the job that you have. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine how difficult that is, but it, I guess it shows the importance of occupational health and safety training. Well, Deirdre, I'm, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. Thank you so much for coming on and giving us your expertise this afternoon. It's been fantastic to talk to you and hopefully really helpful for everybody at home. It was lovely to speak to you, Deirdre. Thank you very much, Matt and Ian. It's been a real pleasure talking to you this afternoon. Thank you. So I hope that everybody enjoyed our discussion with Dr Deirdre Buckley and learned a lot about contact allergy. I think there are a lot of really important messages in there and we would definitely urge you to, to talk to your GP if it's something that you're concerned about. I think one thing that's really clear is just how important it is to understand what your potential allergen is so that you can avoid it if possible. One thing I want to mention before the end of the episode actually is that we're currently running a survey on our social media. So if there are any topics that you would like to see that we haven't addressed already, then please, please fill that out. You can find us on Instagram and on Twitter at DermTested. Also, that way you won't miss an episode. And I think that's all we've got time for today. But thank you so much for listening. And we'll be back in two weeks time.